Welcome to Spotlight, a Bournemouth University series exploring the people and stories behind the research. On today's episode, we chat to Professor Sarah Bate about face recognition, from those who struggle to spot the faces of those closest to them, to the super recognisers whose extraordinary abilities could support policing and security. If you saw your boss outside of the office, would you recognise them? How about if you got separated from a family member, would you be able to find them in a crowd? For people with a condition called prosopagnosia, also known as face blindness, these can be impossible situations. The condition means that they struggle to recognise people's faces, even those of close friends or loved ones. At the other end of the spectrum are super recognisers who have exceptional face processing abilities. Whether it's picking out a face in the crowd on CCTV or matching up a passport photo with the person standing in front of them, their skills could be invaluable in policing and security settings. Professor Sarah Bates' research has explored both ends of the face processing scale and whether these skills can be learnt or improved. I caught up with Sarah to find out more. So Sarah, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, What first got you interested in researching face processing? It just really grabbed me because I suppose I was really fascinated as to why um, something which I'd always taken completely for granted as an ability um, might actually be dependent on quite a complex set of processes within the brain and why that skill is different in different people. And it's just sort of evolved from there as the public awareness of the condition has increased and there's been more media coverage um, and internet coverage of the condition. We're now contacted by thousands of people every year who believe they may experience face blindness. And what is face blindness then and what sort of impact can it have on people's lives? So face blindness is basically um, an inability to recognise other people by their face. And the severity does vary in different individuals. So some people may find they have more of a mild impairment that they cope relatively well with. Whereas for others, it's an absolute inability to recognise familiar faces. So that would include the faces of family, friends, work colleague, and perhaps even one's own face. As I said, some people do cope with it fairly well. We especially see this in people who've had a lifelong version of the condition. So these people just seem to be born without the ability to recognise faces. Um, And when you've never known anything different, sometimes people can develop quite elaborate compensatory strategies, which actually help them to get by in most situations um, they do tend to report being let down when they they see somebody out of context so somebody um, who they might tend to see at work they might bump into at the petrol station and in that scenario they they might fail to recognize that person we do see particular difficulties in children with the condition um, and it can be very hard for especially young children who haven't got those um, abilities or social skills necessarily to actually um, try and disguise their face recognition difficulties Um, so when you do fail to recognize somebody often people can think you're just very rude you've just forgotten me you haven't shown any interest in me where where it's actually a genuine inability to recognize that person so young children can can um, suffer from an inability to actually disguise the problem and also to perhaps react appropriately afterwards. And it can also affect their ability to make friends at school. So 
um, one child that we worked with um, was a Caucasian child and only had one friend at school in um, a whole class of um, Caucasian children except for one who was a Chinese child and it was um, basically just much more easy for that that child to recognise the Chinese child and it, it just limited their, their ability to make friends and to branch out socially. And I suppose also with schools there's the added complication that a lot of people would be in uniforms and so there aren't that maybe those easy strategies that you can draw upon to, to recognise people. Absolutely and um, we know from talking to lots of people with face blindness both adults and children that they, they can use very elaborate um, individual um, accessories or clothing or the way people walk their height, even their voice. Um, and of course, at school, most of those cues are actually taken away because we do have these strict um, school uniform policies. Girls are asked to tie their hair back uh, for school. They're not allowed to wear jewellery or makeup. Um, and some schools actually even have identical school bags um, for different children. So it can be very, very difficult. And I suppose for children particularly, that kind of diagnosis and awareness then is really important for them to a sort of know what it is they're dealing with and be maybe try and come up with some of those coping strategies and and they can say to people oh I've got this condition is that awareness there is the diagnosis there for people who might have prosopagnosia it's certainly improved in recent years so we're seeing um, an increasing number of contacts from people um, so this is often parents who are recognizing the condition in their own children um, particularly when they may have the condition themselves so we do know that it can run in some families so of course those particular parents may be more more clued into um, recognizing the outer symptoms of the condition we are getting increasing contacts from educational psychologists and teachers um, especially special educational needs coordinators um, who are googling the symptoms feeling they don't quite fit other conditions so one of the obvious ones is actually autism and we do know of some face blind children who have been misdiagnosed with autism because struggling with faces can be a symptom of that condition um, but it is a completely separate um, condition and that that's where people do tend to come our way and we actually do have um, well very recently we published a symptom checklist and a list of management strategies, which include the compensatory um, techniques that people can download and use and share with people that have the condition. And so what sort of things should people be looking out for if they think themselves or potentially a family member might have prosopagnosia? So often the key one um, that we hear is um, the failure to recognise somebody out of context. And that can be quite striking. In children, perhaps that one's not quite so obvious. Um, but you'll often see um, things like difficulties following television programmes, films, plays, because um, the individual actually just can't recognise the different actors. So they're not able to follow the plot or storyline. So they might keep asking questions or they might actually think several characters are the same person. Um, so we often see that. In, in children, you very often the first sign will be social isolation which is where sometimes it leads down to that route towards suspecting autism in the first instance um, and it it's really can take a little bit of investigating then to, to actually realise what the underpinning problem actually is. And is there anything people can do to improve their face recognition abilities? So this is something that our research um, has been exploring for several years. We've used a variety of techniques to try and improve face recognition skills, um, including inhalation of a hormone called oxytocin, which we found did actually bring about a temporary improvement in face recognition. But that sort of thing will actually only last a couple of hours. So what we're more interested in is actually carrying out sort of longer 
periods of face training and we've done that with adults um so we've actually just tried to improve the way that they've looked at faces and um draw their attention to what actually differs between different people concentrating on the the eyes the nose and the mouth rather than those external features that they prefer to look at such as the hair and the body shape and we, we've had some success there but what we're really excited by at the moment is a very recent study that we published where we modified the um, family game guess who um, and we actually replaced all the cartoon faces within the there with um, some manipulated faces that we developed within the lab where the faces are all very similar but they might differ only very discreetly on the spacing or shape of the eyes and nose and the mouth and children basically play the, the guess who game and as they get get very good with the faces they progress to different levels of difficulty and um, in this study where we used 80 typical children we actually found nearly a 10% improvement in face memory which was actually greater in the children who had the poorest face recognition skills at the start of the study. So what we're doing now is we're actually um, trialling that with children who actually have face blindness. And we've got children from all over the world um, taking part in this, this study. And we're very hopeful that, that we might find something similar to what we did in the typical children. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you also look at people who have exceptional face processing abilities, um, super recognisers. So is that something people are born with as well, do you think? We do think that. So there hasn't been an actual um, published study so far of super recognition running within the same family, although we have had some anecdotal reports um, from some of our, our research participants. But we do suspect that generally across the whole face recognition spectrum, that individual differences in face recognition ability probably are genetic and, and probably what you have at birth is um, quite a fixed and permanent face recognition ability. And this evidence really comes from twin studies where we see a much higher correlation of face recognition ability in identical twins compared to non-identical twins. And do you know why it is that they're so good at recognising faces? What do they do that's different, say, from the average person or even somebody who might have face blindness? So a lot of work at the moment is really focusing on whether these super recognisers actually have face-specific skills. So is their super ability, if you like, um, confined just to faces? Or do they have very general sort of enhancements in, in all aspects of memory or perception? And most evidence so far actually indicates it's fairly face specific. So we do think we, we actually do find some people who um, are only excellent at face recognition. And we've actually carried out some eye tracking experiments with these people where we show um, the participants pictures of faces on a computer screen and a small video camera will film their eyes and it will overlay where they're looking onto those facial images and what we find is these super recognizers actually seem to focus more on the center of the face than typical people and that's quite interesting because there's another theory uh, to do with face recognition which says we do have these very specific facial um, processing strategies that we only use for faces and it's where we, we look at the eyes, the nose and the mouth together in a way that we call configurable processing. So it's taking account of the spacing of the features and not just their shape and size. Um, and what we think is by looking at the centre of the, the face, the super recognisers are actually employing this ability to see the f overall face as a whole um, rather than looking at each individual feature in isolation. And it might actually be that um, that could be causing um, their superior skills. 
How does that manifest itself then? How would you know if you were a super recogniser? Many of the people that first report to us will tell us of instances where they've recognised somebody on the street who they haven't seen for many, many years. So it might be somebody they last saw when they were six years old and they're now 40. And so obviously that person will have um, undergone a substantial ageing process and they still manage to instantly recognise them but the other person didn't reciprocate the recognition. So this will often lead to to some quite awkward moments and accusations perhaps of um, stalking and so on. That's when it perhaps first twigs with somebody that they do possess excellent face recognition skills. And it's then when we get them into the lab, when we can actually do um, more formal testing, where we get them to do um, things like comparing two faces side by side, which is something you wouldn't really be asked to do in everyday life unless you're a passport control officer or you work for the police. And we start to see um, much more obvious manifestations of this superior face recognition. And you mentioned passport control and policing there. Actually, these skills could have real applications for those sorts of services. Absolutely. And there is a lot of interest um, coming into super recognisers at the moment um, from policing and security settings. Obviously, at the moment, international security is a massive issue. And the most recent findings have actually found that um, it's when you have an excellent human operator working together in combination with a computer algorithm. So things like automated e-gates at passport control. And they will always send um, somebody to a human for the final decision, whether or not the computer it picks, um, picks it up. Um, and it, it's the, the actual combination of humans with computers, um, which brings about the, the most accurate recognition rates at the moment. It might be with time, um, computers do overtake humans, but for the moment, it's very reassuring to know that if we can identify the very best human recognisers and make them work in tandem with computers, that, that we can optimise our security. Do you find that people with um, excellent face recognition skills are naturally sort of drawn to those sorts of positions? Are they already working in the police or security because they just found it was something that they were good at? Or do you think there needs to be a concerted effort to find these people and place them in those sorts of positions? Some studies um, that have already been published have really examined that by um, just seeing how good our passport a group of passport control officers or a group of police officers and what they actually have found is it's no different to a typical population so this is where the interest is really starting to come in now um, from these security agencies and it is in response to those findings that there's two um, parts to it really first of all it's people who are very good at face recognition aren't naturally being drawn to those occupations but also some of these people are working there for 10 years um, and so on but they're actually never getting any better so there's absolutely no correlation with the length of service that, that somebody has. So it seems you don't get better with time. And actually the official face recognition training programmes that police officers and um, passport control officers are required to go through are actually ineffective. So essentially it's something you either have or you don't, it seems like. Absolutely, yeah. And that's where um, it becomes very important for us to actually develop the testing and the diagnostic abilities that we need to accurately identify the individuals who who naturally have this skill and what sort of applications do you think they could have sort of super recognizers i imagine kind of missing children cases where there might be a long period of time before someone spotted again and their face might have changed significantly or trying to find people in a crowd on cctv what sort of uses could a super recognizer have there the use of super recognizers for now is going to be quite confined um, to certain face recognition scenarios because they're not recognized as trained professionals um, so they, their evidence cannot actually stand up in a court of law. So at the moment, until there's 
some sort of policy change surrounding that. Having a natural ability in something does not make you excellent or an expert in the eyes of the law. So the use of super recognisers at the moment is during an active case. So it's during an investigation or just generally at passport control in in that sort of scenario. So um, the police described to us um, examples of where super recognisers have actually been brought in to accelerate a case. And that might be because if there is a missing person or they're trying to track down a suspect, they have different um, sections of CCTV footage captured in different locations and what they're actually um, asking people to do is a really difficult task when you're completely unfamiliar with a face is this the same person and that's where where the use of super recognizers seems to be um, really focused at the moment when it comes to spotting um, people in football matches and so on there is some use um, around very large events um, where there may be um, a team of super recognizers who are actually familiar with a group of people who might be known as troublemakers or they're looking for specific suspects who might turn up um, in in those sorts of scenarios. But the focus at the moment is very much on accelerating cases where this unfamiliar face recognition ability is so poor in typical people. And so what's next for you then? Are there any other parts of the face processing spectrum that you're interested in looking at or um, what are you exploring next? So we're really interested um, at the moment in bringing our face training programs down to um, as young an age as possible. And the reason for that is there's a general um, principle of neurorehabilitation, which is basically um, the younger you get somebody, the better your chance of success. So because we know that face blindness can actually run in families, this might actually give us um, the chance to work with children, perhaps even from birth. So what we're working on at the moment is a study where we're actually trying to improve um, the face recognition skills of newborn babies. So we're recruiting mums while they're still pregnant. And what we're doing is we're actually giving them um, exercises and information about ways in which they might be able to improve their eye contact or increase their eye contact with their baby. And psychological theory is currently that within the first few weeks of life, the more eye contact um, that you make, it might actually be a fixed period where we, we only have this one period um, or one chance for intervention, which might actually help with lo- um, later social development. And that's exactly what we're doing. So we're trying to increase eye contact during the first weeks of life. We're also taking an objective measure of, of that eye contact when the babies are 12 weeks old using our eye tracking technology. And then we track the child's social development um, through Um, until they're five years old when they're actually be old enough to take some actual face recognition tests and we're interested to see whether there are any correlations there um, between the amount of eye contact that children or babies actually made in those first few weeks and um, social development and face recognition ability at the age of five. And if anyone's been listening to this and thinks they might either have prosopagnosia or be a super recogniser or be interested in taking part in any of those research studies, where can they go to find out more? So we'd love to hear from anybody um, who thinks they're face blind, who thinks they're a super recogniser or is pregnant or has um, a very young baby um, that they'd be interested to involve in our work. You can find me on Twitter. Um, My Twitter handle is Professor Sarah Bate or just by googling my name, Sarah Bate, Bournemouth University, you'll hit my 
my contact details straight away. And there are also pages on the NHS now, aren't there, that um, kind of give people a bit more information about symptoms of prosopagnosia and, and what they need to do. And am I right in thinking that you helped to create those? That's right. So back in 2014, um, we actually carried, uh, we took part in um, a meeting at the House of Commons um, with some MPs and charities where we called for formal recognition of face blindness by the NHS. And that meeting did result in that. And um, face blindness now has its own page on the NHS website and if you um, visit it uh, you will find that it does link directly to our our own research pages here at Bournemouth University and it also has some downloadable resources from our laboratory which will help with spotting the symptoms of prosopagnosia or face blindness and suggested ways of um, actually compensating or working around the condition. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on Spotlight and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud to hear more from Bournemouth University.